Good morning, everybody. So what do you think of when you hear the word repentance? You may picture someone on their knees. You may picture someone sort of beating themselves up, trying to get to a place where they feel like they're right with God. They can conjure up all kinds of thoughts and, and pictures. And there's actually unique challenges with repentance, even in the American culture. There's a book called Jesus, Mean, and Wild. It's written by Mark Galley, and he pictures three different kinds of people when they come into the act of repentance. The first group he considers himself to be part of is sort of the I'm okay people. We tend to see ourselves that way. He says, some days it's hard to imagine that I'm a miserable offender. I go to church, I read my Bible, I unload the dishwasher, help with the homeless. I don't beat my kids, I take out the trash, close my day with prayer, regular prayer. He said, there's another jewel in my crown. I usually have nothing but minor things to confess, a little sloth here and there, some impatience. But then he said, for others, the repentance can run deeper. Rather, the problems with repentance can run deeper. They've been raised in a legalistic environment, carrying a guilt-laden backpack that would bend the knees of a Himalayan Sherpa. And the most of the guilt they realize is neurotic, not based on any real transgression, but the product of what he calls defective discipleship. Years of quote-unquote Christian nurture contorted their souls and after uh, failing to say a rosary or breaking one of a thousand other man-made religious taboos, they can't shake the pangs of miserable guilt. There's another group. He calls them those who live with a sense of complete spiritual despair. Those who along the way believe and rightly believe that Religion is about love and grace, but they heard a rumor that God is holy, and they suspect that they just may be miserable sinners. They spend days making sure that these combustible ideas never mix something repentance tries to do, because if they ever did go into repentance, they were fear the resulting explosion would blow their faith to smithereens. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. Maybe you feel that going down those pathways of repentance and confession are dark roads that you'd rather just not even try and traverse. That going through this world is constantly just making you dirtier and dirtier, and the thoughts of your past make you feel dirtier and dirtier. And you wonder, can I ever be fully clean? And what I want to talk about this morning is how do I become spiritually clean? How can I live in such a way that I'm not confounded with guilt or despair? And the passage I want to look at today exists really on two levels. It's one you're probably familiar with. It's John chapter 13, and we'll start with verse 1, but it exists sort of on two planes. On the one surface, you see Christ serving, very humbly serving His disciples, but then on a deeper plane, He's giving them a lesson on spirituality and becoming spiritually clean. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we'll start with verse 1 of John chapter 13, John 13 verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. 
during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. You may be seated. We're again moving through the gospel of John, looking at what many in church history consider to be high and lofty doctrines of Jesus Christ. And we did this last week. I'd like to do it again this week because John included in his book the purpose for writing the book. So could we please again read these verses together from the screen from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I believe the passage we just read calls us to three actions that I'd like to go over. Very simply, get clean, stay clean, clean others. Get clean, stay clean, clean others. Now, let's start out with this first. Get clean. Get clean. And uh, we see last week, we saw rather, that the final plea of Jesus, this public plea, was to get saved. He said, believe. And now we're jumping into what's known as the upper room discourse, this last section in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is spending his last moments with his disciples. They're having a meal together. And it doesn't take long for us to see just how deep Christ's love is for these disciples. And remember, John is writing with hindsight. And the time of this section is before the Feast of Passover. And Jesus knew that this would lead him into his crucifixion. This is his last hour. And we see there in verse 1... Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
And John's starting this section with what he knows to be true about Christ, his deep love and concern for others that he was about to leave behind. He knew the struggles that they were going to face. And love is now going to be the emphasis of this section. Love and service and what Jesus does and says is stemming from a deep love and devotion for those who he's getting ready to leave behind. When he's talking about the world, he's talking about the mass of lost humanity. They would be in this world. The world would not treat them well. And the connection to Passover is key to understanding what's happening. Again, the Passover was an annual celebration of the Jews. When God's wrath passed over them, if you remember back in the time of exile in Egypt, they had to put the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. So when the Holy, the, the, the Spirit of God, they called the destroyer in the Old Testament, passed by, the angel of the Lord would not kill the firstborn in that house. That was how he brought his last plague upon Egypt. But now one would be covered in the blood of Christ, the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. That is now how you do not succumb to the wrath of God, being covered by the blood of Christ. Verse 2 reveals that Judas was now determined to betray Christ, that Satan was at the heart of the matter, and it heightens what Jesus is about to do, just how much. You'll see in a moment how much he loves these people. In the next verse, Jesus proceeds to go through the act of washing the feet of the disciples. Verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. See, this is what the text says just before He dresses like a servant, a slave, to wash feet. And that's going to stress even further the act of love and humility that Jesus is about to perform. And it's ironic that this is how he will go about defeating the power of Satan. Satan is involved in entering into Judas at the heart of the matter. At the same time, how is Christ combating that? Carson said this, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected him to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. That's what we'd like to do, right? Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of his betrayer, Judas. He takes on the appearance of a servant and what he's wearing. He'd perform a menial task, the most menial task a servant could do in washing feet. And the Gospel of Luke actually records an argument that happened right before the foot washing takes place. In Luke, the the disciples were arguing about, well, who is greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus is about to show them this is how you become the greatest in the kingdom. And in Jesus' act of service, don't forget that Jesus, too, allowed himself to be served, didn't he? Did Jesus allow his own feet to be washed? Yeah. He allowed his own feet to be washed with a, what would be the equivalent of a $70,000 jar of perfume. So don't get the attitude that you'll never let someone serve you. Jesus allowed himself to be served. And, and understand, too, that we only get clean as we accept the servanthood of Jesus. 
And we'll see it more clearly in a moment, but this again is a multi-layered passage. On one level, Jesus is humbly teaching humble servanthood, but on another level, he's teaching them about becoming spiritually clean. And then he gets to Peter. We don't hear anything from the other disciples, though we hear something from Peter. There's one disciple that just can't seem to keep his mouth shut. Look at verses 6 and 7. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, and listen to this carefully, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. That's, that's kind of a cue, you know, you can be quiet now. You're not going to get it fully. And he has the expectation they won't understand. They're not going to understand either immediately why Jesus is going to have to die. They, They'll only understand it after he was resurrected and the Holy Spirit comes to them. It's the beginning of the book of Acts. Until then, and this is one of the marks of a true disciple, they will have to just trust the wisdom of the Master. But Peter's struggling with this. And Jesus' answer didn't satisfy him. So he proceeds to tell Jesus what he should and shouldn't do. They have this interchange in verse 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. On the surface, it seems like, again, it's his love from Peter. He doesn't want Jesus doing this menial task, but yet Jesus sharply rebukes him. And why does he do that? Well, it's because Peter doesn't get what's happening. And he doesn't understand the symbolic act of what Jesus is demonstrating, just like he won't understand why Jesus is going to the cross. He was in a total state of confusion. And then in verse 9, when Peter understands the consequences, what he perceives as the determination uh, of their relationship, he says, well, Jesus, wash my head, wash all of me. But again, Peter's speaking because he still doesn't get it. Jesus talking about something much deeper. He'll explain it in verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And, if, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew was to, who was to betray him. That was why he said not all of you are clean. Peter needs a washing of the soul. And when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, this is always true that unless the Lamb of God has taken away a person's sin, has washed that person, he or she can have no part with him. And this is the two-part wash Jesus is talking about in verse 10. He was talking about spiritual cleaning. You can think of that as a spiritual cleansing, being an initial cleansing. And there's an ongoing cleansing. And our initial cleansing, which would be the bath, you could call it a forensic cleansing, meaning we have an initial cleansing that puts us in right standing with God. Right legal standing. We were guilty, and we've been declared innocent by trusting in the person and work of Jesus. Because when a person believes in Jesus, and they trust in his person and work, he removes all the guilt of that person. Any sin they've committed, past, present, and future. And that's the initial cleansing. This is what Paul is uh, talking about in Romans 8.1. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So first of all, we have to get clean. This one-time deal, you're declared clean. As it says in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it says declared. You have been declared righteous, and you put your faith in Jesus. You're not being made righteous in this sense. You are declared righteous. So first of all, we get clean, and I have to remind myself every morning, and this is no exaggeration, every morning, every night before I go to bed, that Chad, you have been made clean. I have one of those consciences. You know, I, I tend to carry guilt And I have to wake up reminding myself that, yes, Jesus has declared me righteous. And oftentimes, when I wake up troubled in the middle of the night, which happens more times than I want to admit, I have to claim these promises. We always have to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. I'm still a child of God, though I still sin. That's what Christ addresses next. And secondly... We've got to stay clean. This is what Christ is also going to address. There's an also an ongoing cleansing. This is what Jesus meant that you have to keep washing your feet. You've bathed, but you've got to keep washing your feet. You can, you can call this family forgiveness. The other was forensic forgiveness. You're put in right legal standing with God, but you also need what you could call this ongoing family forgiveness. Now, what do I mean by family forgiveness? Oftentimes, through my childhood and my teenage years, through my adult years, I've had to apologize to my parents. I've said things that I wish I wouldn't have said, and they've always been forgiving. My dad, up until he passed away, and and my mom to this day, they're forgiving people. But at no point was I ever not their son even though I had wronged them. We don't lose our salvation when we sin any more than we lose our status as sons and daughters of our parents when we do wrong things toward them. This is why we have 1 John 1, 9. We say this virtually every morning during our call to confession. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is one of the reasons we started the call to confession before we go into the act of worship because we know that once a Sunday, rather once a week, you are going to have an opportunity to confess. It didn't mean you had lost your salvation, but this is about a relationship. We have a relationship with God and just Similarly, with human relationships, we sin against each other. We have to ask for forgiveness. We do the same thing with God. We ask for forgiveness. And if you ever want to know how you should treat people who may hate you or not like you, if you look at verse 11, you see Jesus cleaned the feet of Judas. Even though he was not truly clean because he had not believed Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus then puts on his outer garments. He asks them if they understand what he did. He tells them their right to call him Lord and teacher. And truth be told, he was infinitely superior to them all. 
And that brings us to number three. We get clean, we stay clean, we also clean others. Jesus, infinitely superior to them all, gave them an example of how to live. In verses 14 and 15, it says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. He's making the point, I've taken a role lower than yours for your benefit that you should willingly, with a good attitude, put the needs of others before your own prestige, before your own reputation. What's the motivation for this? Why should you do this? It's because you've already received the love of God. And Jesus knew his identity. He stated way back in verses 3 and 4, look again, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, why did John include this right before Jesus performed this act of service? It's because Jesus knew his identity as a dearly loved child of God. And that gave him this freedom to serve generously. And you and I can also serve as dearly loved children. I I loved Paul's prayer, talking about what true freedom and liberty is in Christ. Free to be loved by God. Free to serve God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He said, if we functionally see ourselves as orphans needing to look out for ourselves instead of as God's beloved children... We will limit our generosity towards others out of fear of not having enough. Likewise, if we think we are righteous by our own hard work, there will be boundaries to the way we are willing to serve others because our pride keeps us from serving those who aren't deserving. But see, the point he's making here, you can think of it like this. You know, if you only have $2 and you give one of those dollars away, man, you're out 50% of what you have. But if you have a trillion dollars and somebody just takes one of those, well, you've given up like absolutely nothing. That's how we are to love people, as those who've received an infinite amount of love, and therefore we have plenty to give away. In verse 16, Jesus gives further reason for this kind of radical humility. He says, uh, rather than just 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Christ gave us a beautiful freedom to serve others. He's saying, look, I have brought myself to a lowlier state than you. As a servant in Philippians 2, it describes Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus was able to serve in a way nobody expected because he intimately, he knew the love of the Father and and the same heart that led him to wash the disciples' feet would lead him to the cross. And having received that love as our, as being his sons and daughters, we're to express that to others. That's the why. And what happens when you do this? Look at verse 17. 
If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not enough to just know it. You also need to do it. So we get clean, we stay clean, we clean others, and the result will be blessed. And you know many of us, many of you are in a season of waiting. Maybe you're waiting on that next job. Maybe you're waiting on a spouse. Maybe you're waiting on God showing you what you should maybe study in college. You're waiting on something. You're in a season where you're waiting. But, you know, in your season of waiting, make sure you're doing what you know you should be doing. Don't just stop. That's the worst thing you can do. It's like stopping pedaling on a bike. You're just going to fall over. And in this waiting, you'll find joy and you'll find this blessing if you do what he's told you to do. <clears throat> now, what does this look like? Well, it could look like helping a neighbor. It could look like helping a coworker, helping somebody in our church with some real needs. But Jesus is saying to his disciples and he's saying to us, express the love you've received by humbly serving others. Express the love that you've received by humbly serving others. And what can a modern-day foot washing look like? I want to close with a picture of two guys that I'm assuming you probably don't know. I've mentioned the guy um, that's on your left before. His name's Greg Hatterberg. He and I worked together at Dallas Seminary. And rather, we worked on the same floor, and, and Greg is a super-giving loving guy. Charles Swindolph, you know who that is, refers to Greg Hatterberg as his hero. Shortly into Greg's marriage, within the first few years, his wife uh, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and for decades, he can, he's taken care of his wife. Uh, he dresses her, fixes her hair, he puts on her makeup, he does the whole nine yards. But see, that's not really why I'm bringing Greg up today. Greg, just this past week, donated a kidney to the guy that's on your right. His name's Stephen Bramer. He's one of the professors I had back at Dallas Seminary. And when I look at Greg, I think here's a guy who had every reason to say, you know, I care for my wife. I've got a full-time job. I've got lots of reasons I could have said no to this. And this was not an easy surgery for Greg. As a matter of fact, Dr. Bramer said this about Greg in the past week. He said that his transfer had gone well. The kidney's functioning like it should, but he said this. He said, Greg, on the other hand, is experiencing a great deal of pain. He was in a different operation with more incisions. They had to use uh, carbon dioxide gas to inflate him. He said it caused great pain as the gas was dissipated, especially in the shoulder area. He needs to get up and move around, but that's extremely painful from the incisions to please pray for him. He said, both Greg and I are thankful for God's care in the operations. We sense his will being done. We'd like more prayer for our recoveries. Now, here's a guy who had every reason to say, you know what? I don't need to do this right now. And I told both these guys this. I said, you know what? This is a modern-day foot washing. This is serving someone sacrificially, even in a painful way, to do something for someone that was put in Greg's path, whom he loved and whom he wanted to serve. How might God call you to express that kind of love?
You know, we accept his love initially in that initial act of forgiveness. We continue to wash our feet. We continue to bring our sins to God. And then we look for these opportunities to wash and clean the feet of others. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would look for these opportunities, that we could express the deep love that you have for us, Lord Jesus. You showed us in this act that you performed on these disciples. Lord, you showed us when you went to the cross to die for ungrateful people who didn't even understand what you were doing. And Lord, because you have shown us such great love, I pray that we would extend that love to those who are around us. They would know we are Christians by our love, Lord. And I'm thankful for this act of communion that we go into now, Lord. This, again, what a loving way, Lord, that you've called us to, to continue celebrating, Lord Jesus, your death by drinking some juice, drinking something sweet. I thank you, Lord, for this moment we're going into. It's in your name we pray. Amen.